we're giving a lot of attention to our picnic coming up. And uh, I just wanted to ask, is there a chapter and verse someplace that endorses a Sunday school picnic? <laughs> what do you think? <laughs> is it um, one of those things that goes along with being the church? Or is it just one of those things that we enjoy without necessarily connecting it to the church? You know, like watching those Eskimos, right? It's a lot of fun this year. Uh, straight, seven straight wins. Now I know, I know that uh, seven wins to begin with somehow doesn't even count when it comes to the Grey Cup. It's too bad. It should count for something. But uh, one thing for sure about seven wins, it means that the first team that beats them will have extra bragging rights because of who they beat. But what about our picnic? I want us to go back to the very beginning of what it means to be the church. And to me, the beginning goes back to Matthew chapter 16, where Jesus reveals his vision, his plan. Perhaps I should especially call it mission to the apostles, saying that I will build my church. And then just a few days later, he's in Jerusalem, where after some further days, he's arrested, tried, crucified, and he is risen from the dead. And then over the next 40 days or so, he appears several times to his disciples. And uh, then he commissions them. Before he ascends, he commissions them that they are to make disciples from every nation. But he also tells them, he instructs them to wait in Jerusalem. Don't go right away. Wait in Jerusalem until the coming of the Holy Spirit. Well, on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit came with dramatic manifestations. And Peter proclaim the whole Christ story. And about 3,000 people responded positively. And the New Testament church was born. That was the beginning of the New Testament church as we know it today. And, uh, and so we're going to look at that. And I'd like you, if you have your Bibles, turn to your Bibles, but I've also got it up, up on overhead but I'm going to be reading from Acts chapter 2, beginning with verse 40, where we have Peter's, uh, where it finishes what Peter's been saying. And it goes on to say, with many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourself from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their numbers that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions 
to give to anyone who had need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. What an exciting time in the life of the church, at the very beginning of the church. And these uh, verses, they simply exude excitement and enthusiasm and vibrancy. Uh, and of course, we, we look at those as, 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 as a model for us in many ways. But there are some things here that simply cannot be duplicated. They would be on, totally beyond human control as the, as the signs, the miracles. And then there are other things going on here where we don't have... this hello good you know we're no longer prepared to uh, speak without mics I'm sure that if I was prepared I wouldn't have to have a mic but uh, I have uh, developed a way of speaking where yeah I sure appreciate a mic uh, but uh, I was saying about uh, the early church being our model. There are some things that are not to be duplicated. And uh, we see no, no evidence or indication anywhere that they continued to live in a communal way where they shared everything with everybody that didn't continue to the end of the New Testament. But there are some things that are definitely transferable. And I would even go further to say, not only transferable, but essentials for every time and place. I'm talking, for example, about things like the teaching, the prayer, the breaking of bread, the very close fellowship, the praising of the Lord, and then the evangelism as they reached out beyond themselves. And every one of those things that I mentioned are, would be a topic in itself. But today I'm going, to, I'm going to talk about the one thing that it's almost like a venue for everything else. Everything else comes out of that situation or it's happening in that context. And uh, what I'm noticing here and want to develop is that they were experiencing close fellowship. They were experiencing what we can call community. They were experiencing community. Three ideas that I want to develop to relate to this. The first one is that this was the very birth of the community. The birth of the church was the birth of that faith community in their togetherness. And then secondly, I want to talk about some of the things that were going on. And then finally, where does it leave us today?
but the birth of the community. Verse 41 tells us that about 3,000 people responded to the proclamation of Peter and, uh, and that they were added to the 120 that were already there. Remember, there was about 120 disciples that uh, met in the upper room and awaited the coming of the Holy Spirit. But these together became a special people. They became the church, the New Testament church. As individuals were responding to Peter's proclamation, it says they were added to the number. They became first uh, part of first church. No Lone Ranger Christianity here. None of this business, just Jesus and me, or Jesus is all that I need. But it's not like they were simply saved and then moved on to someone else to get saved, but they became part of that community. And it's obvious that that had not been God's plan, that he should just save as many individuals as possible and let them live you know, in isolation from one another. And as we go back to the very beginning in the Old Testament, we see again that God's method, God's MO from the very beginning was to build a people, to work with the corporate entity. <clears throat> he chose the nation of Israel. Oh yes, there were leaders that made it happen, but the nation of Israel, that would be God's people through whom the Messiah would come. When we come to the New Testament, we see that John the Baptist came on the scene and his mission was sent to prepare a people, a corporate entity, that were ready for the Messiah. And then when our Lord comes on the scene, he gave the bulk of his time to the 12. Why 12? Well, I believe it's one way of showing the continuity with Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel. But he, he gave a special amount of time to the group, corporate, groupness. And as I said earlier, when he declared his mission, it was, I will build my church, corporate entity. And so the beginning of this mission in Acts chapter 2, as people responded to the gospel, they became part of the church. The Lord created a community. We see that in verse 1. The Lord added to their number. The Lord added to the corporate unit called the church. Well, let's go on now and look at the dynamics of the community. What was taking place in this community? And I notice the many expressions of togetherness. <laughs> Verse 44, all the believers were together. Verse 46, every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together. Together, together. There was that togetherness, so much sharing of life together. Three observations related to that. The first one is they devoted themselves to that. Verse 42, it says they devoted themselves to two things. The apostles' teaching. Very important. And they devoted themselves to fellowship, to the togetherness, the corporate entity. Uh, and the word uh, that you've often heard, I'm sure teachers and pastors refer to the word koinonia which is the word for fellowship. And it means a partnership, having something in common, a close relationship. They were devoted to that. The second expression here, or observation, 
is that they were doing things together that are obviously faith kind of things, Christian uh, spiritual kind of things. You know, they learned from the apostles' teaching. They broke bread, that is, they observed the Lord's table, the Lord's supper together. Uh, they prayed together. Uh, they worshipped or praised him together. And so they were doing these things that you wouldn't normally do unless you were a Christian. They were doing these faith things together. But the third observation, and I like, I like to highlight this one, they also experienced much of normal life together. That is, they shared together in things that we don't necessarily think of as spiritual faith kind of things. You know, like they spent time in each other's homes. Verse 46, they spent time eating together. And uh, there I believe it is referring to the Lord's Supper, but in that setting, uh, the taking of communion was part of a larger uh, fellowship meal. And, uh, and so it was like they weren't just doing the, you know, these vertical things together, these, these spiritual things, but there was a certain amount of normal life that they experienced together. And can you imagine the many things that, you know, couldn't, couldn't be mentioned that, of course, were going on when you had all these people together for so many, many days, being together, you know, laughing, crying, washing dishes. I suspect that today that uh, paper plates will not need to be washed, but I don't think they had paper plates back then. And uh, so the washing of dishes, looking after children. <laughs> I mean, these were normal children. Uh, their bathroom routine was not uh, put on hold just because of all the wonderful, exciting things that were going on. These were normal kids with normal needs, normal kind of crises. And of course, it couldn't be mentioned, but they drank gallons and gallons and gallons of coffee together, right? Of course they did. Of course they did. See, here is what I want to highlight, that experiencing community should include both praying together and playing together. Don't you think? Certain amount of playing, <laughs> having good time together, sharing normal life together, as well as the vertical, the praying together like having a Sunday school picnic, right? Normal things, experiencing so much of life together. And in the context of that kind of fellowship, the early church was able to experience the, the very thing that Jesus had commanded of his disciples, namely that they should love one another, thus proving that they really were his disciples. That kind of love isn't going to happen in a vacuum. It requires fellowship. It requires the sharing of life. It requires the building of relationship. It re requires community experience. And that is being developed. You know, when you, when you pray together, when you've cried together, when you've laughed together, when you've risked together, when you've accomplished a tough 
project together, and I'm sure a lot of people who are part of a, a long, you know, or charter members, let's say, in, in, in a church, as they work together to get the church started, when you've supported each other and worked together on a project, and when you've supported one another in crisis, you have community. And then you have the context for the kind of love that impressed the pagan so much. Behold how they love one another. Well, that was then. What about the here and now? What about us? And the exact shape, of course, is going to be different. But Christians, even living a couple thousand years later, uh, whatever the time and place, we still need to experience that sense, that experience of community, though it will take different shapes, different times, different cultures. And I'm sure that uh, Leah and Kevin can speak to that, that it wouldn't look the same over in the Philippines and certainly not in China, even though we know the church is alive there too. And so it's going to be different in different places. But wherever you are, whenever you are, we still need the same kind of, the, these kind of experiences. For example, learning together, worshiping together, eating together, praying for one another, encouraging one another. And I just want to add a little extra note about the learning together. We emphasize, and so we should, the individual reading and study of scriptures. All for it. And I'm very grateful that I've had the opportunity to do that. And of course, as you know, I get to do that on company time. And I'm very grateful for that. Yet, at least as important is the learning together. Even as here, they were learning together from the apostles. See, lone rangers have a way of getting off balance, missing some things, majoring on the minors and minoring on the majors. We need one another to be at our best, to have the best kind of perspective. Worshiping, eating, praying, encouraging, experiencing community. And it could be that the experience of community today is more attractive to people, to a lot of people than ever, because so many relationships get interrupted. Uh, the instances of marriage breakups, increased mobility, less people living near extended family than in years ago. And yet, there can be that family kind of experience within the Christian community. I want to make a couple of summary points related to uh, today, experiencing you know, community in all times and places. One of them would be what we could refer to as mutual ministry, mutual and reciprocal ministry. Paul's most common metaphor of the church was that of a human body. Romans 12:46. for just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function. So in Christ we, though many, form one body. And each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. 
Paul is saying here that every member, each member, belongs to all the others. That means that you have a claim on me. It means I have a claim on you. Mutual claim, mutual ownership, interdependence. And each of us needs the benefit that comes from the ministering of one to another using our very varied skills and gifts and experiences. We all have something different to bring to the body of Christ. And it is when we work together as a team that we can have maximum impact, both in our Christian growth as disciples and in our ability to reach out in evangelism. The work of the Lord was never intended to be the work of a few leaders like pastors or missionaries or evangelists. No, and those of us who are leaders, our call is to use our gifts in a way that helps the team to play better. We are to be something like a playing coach so that the team gets better. The work of the Lord is the work of the church. It's the work of the whole faith community. Mutual ministry. Secondly, mutual belonging. We already read that in Romans 12 where each member belongs to the other. And that's true in terms of claim. But I want to develop that further and say it should also be true in a sense of experience. That each person really is able to say, you know, I belong here. I belong with those people. The sense of being loved and supported. The sense that I'm accepted the way I am with my many rough edges. And a sense that people here will be patient with me in my desire to grow. The sense that I'm at home here. Now that means having several close, caring friends in the congregation. People that you know will be there, often with you, always for you. Those who will share in your joys and support you in your sorrows. A place where you can take off your mask and still be loved, knowing that you're accepted here. And that here's a place where I can do my little part Maybe small, maybe larger, but I can make a contribution. In one of his books, uh, Charles Swindoll writes, With all of my heart, I believe that Christ wants his church to be a fellowship where people can come in and say, I'm sunk, I'm beat, I've had it. Difficulties, trials, challenges, hardships of one kind or another are inevitable. But what a gift it is when there is a sense that in my community I have the support I need. And that would be, a, that would be a, an experience that we would hope that our many shut-ins would have, that they would say, you know, even though I'm not able to get around as much as before and I'm not able to do some of the things I did before, I still know I belong because these people care about me. This is my family. This is my family functioning family of God. Well, I ask the question, how important is this? How important is it for the individual in our pew? <clears throat> how important is it for 
our people, those who have been around for a while and those that are just sort of testing it, uh, us out. How important is it to have that sense that here I belong, here I feel at home. And I would say that often it's the tipping point between hanging in there or not for the long haul. It's true of those who just begin the Christian life, if they're going to hang in, and it's true of those who've been serving for some time. I completely agree with Reverend Ed Dick, who was our interim area minister with the Canadian Baptist of Western Canada a while ago, but he made this statement. He said, while preaching and programs may draw people to church, it will be supportive relationships which provide the glue for attenders to stay and engage in greater spiritual growth. I am sure that that is true most of the time. There are, of course, many exceptions. But usually it has to do with relationships. Um, Charles and Wynne Arne are church growth researchers. And here is a conclusion that they have come up with in their research. Friendship appears to be the strongest bond cementing new members to their congregations. If they do not immediately develop meaningful friendships in their church, expect them to return to their old friendships and ways outside the church. And then they say seven new friendships are a minimum, 10, 15 or more are better. Uh, those are just obviously figures of math that they've come up with based on their research. But the important thing isn't so much the number, but the fact that there are significant friendships within your faith community. And so as you look to your future, the biggest challenge will not be to have people visit it won't be to have people try out our church. It won't even be to have them come back two or three times. But the biggest challenge will be to give them a reason to settle in for the long haul, and that in turn requires that those newer ones become integrated into the life of the congregation, and the key to that, relationships. For most often, it's relationships that draws people to Christ and his people in the first place. In, uh, in, 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 in the topic of evangelism lately, there's a saying that has become quite popular, and it's this one. Belonging often comes before believing. For many people, the sense of, I belong with these people, comes before they commit to the faith. Uh, certainly I experienced that to some extent. I was brought up in a Christian context, but somehow it was when I became part of a group, part of young people, and it meant so much to me, that's when I started to take seriously, hey, I've got to make that definite commitment, or I need to make my commitment definite. So for many, it's belonging and then commitment and then believing. It's what God uses to keep us growing in the faith, and it's what keeps people in a particular church. 
And so as I move to a conclusion, I want to say that there is nothing more important in a church, nothing more important than that its people have this vital experience of togetherness, learning, growing, worshiping, serving, breaking bread, laughing and crying together, each person knowing this is where I belong. Nothing more important than that. It's the venue in which these other things take place. And so what can each of us do? What can I do as an individual? What can you do to strengthen our experience of community? I want to land on just one point as we go from here this morning. I want to say this, gladly, gladly accept and enjoy a certain reality. What reality? Our interdependence. The fact is we need one another. I cannot be my best as a Christian without fellowship with other believers. In fact, I'm not sure that I could survive in being a faithful Christian without fellowship with others. So I want to say here, enjoy that interdependence. Enjoy being dependent. That's hard. <laughs> but just accept it. You are dependent on others, and you're supposed to be. And so enjoy it. But then also enjoy being on the other end. Enjoy helping others who are dependent on you. And there will be times when we're more on the one end than the other. Seasons of life. Sometimes we're able to do more on the giving end. Other times, we need more than ever to be on the receiving end. Accept it. Accept the reality of our interdependence. And so let's be the kind of church where observers can say about us, if they bother to really observe us in depth, that they are able to say, these people, they really care for each other. These people like being together. These people obviously feel that they belong. These people are experiencing community. And you know what? If I, I even think that I too would experience that sense of belonging if I were to come here. And so I want to say today, enjoy the picnic and enjoy one another at the picnic. It's part of being community.